and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Intentional Performers podcast. I am Brian Levinson, excited to have you with us for today's episode. But before we get to today's guest, I want to tell you about some exciting things that are going on with me and the business that I've been building for quite some time now. So first of all, I have a new book out. It's called Shift Your Mind. It's my first book. I've spent over three years working on it, really excited about the final product, and it is available for pre-sale. So if you go over to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, if you're into a local bookstore, you can go to IndieBound.org and check out which bookstores are carrying my book. I'm based right outside Washington, D.C., and uh, the bookstore that I often go to is called Politics and Prose, and it was cool to go over to IndieBound.org and check out the book on their site. So it comes out October 6th, but pre-orders are now available. Would really mean a lot if you went over and purchased a book, maybe two, maybe three, maybe you would buy it for your whole team. So anyway, really appreciate those of you that have supported the podcast. And if you've enjoyed these conversations, I promise you, you will enjoy the book. It goes into how you need to set your mind for preparation and performance, which is something that I often talk about on this podcast. And I'm just really excited to share the book with all of you. So appreciate the support and looking forward to hearing what you all think. Also, we launched a new company. It's called Strong Skills. And as I've done more and more work in the corporate world, I've always been astonished by the idea that the work that I do for a living on the human side of performance is called soft skills. And it really kind of frustrated me, especially coming from the sports world, where soft is not a good thing. If you're soft, you're often getting cut from a team or getting benched. And so strong skills is designed to really shape and transform and shift how organizations are thinking about developing the inner skills necessary for performance. So I've partnered with some world-class coaches and trainers, and we provide workshops. We do all kinds of speaking experiences, and we also do one-on-one coaching. So go over to strongskills.co. You'll also see the book listed there, and you, of course, we'll see the podcast. And we're just doing some exciting things and would love for you to check out the website. And feel free to email me if you think there is something there that has grabbed your attention and you want to pursue a little further. Now to today's guest. As soon as Rob Lively and I started chatting, I could tell this is a badass of a dude, but he's also got 
amazing leadership skills and compassion and a heart. So this is somebody who mixes strength, toughness in all kinds of ways. And a lot of times we think of strength and toughness as being just physical. And certainly you're going to listen to Rob and hear from Rob. He is strong physically, but his mental and emotional and spiritual capacity is also what I think separates him and what separates this conversation. I've been fortunate to talk to all kinds of special operators in the army and the navy we've we've had we've been really lucky to talk to people that have put their lives on the line and been on the front lines in some of the most rugged environments and rob recently retired after 28 years of military service as the command sergeant major of a special missions unit within the United States Army Special Ops Command at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And Rob doesn't really get into exactly what he was doing when it comes to Special Ops, but I have friends that know Rob, and I've talked to him a bit offline. And believe me, he has been in some of the most intense situations that somebody could be at in our military. So he's an experienced and proven leader. He's operated and led teams and organizations in all kinds of diverse and challenging environments. He was able to lead and influence from the tactical to the strategic and do so across the boundaries that often exist between services, militaries, agencies, and countries. He was actually recommended to me by Mark Polymeropoulos. I always have a hard time getting Mark's name out there. And Mark worked in the CIA for a number of years and said, Rob's your guy. You would love chatting with them. And Rob culminated his army service at the highest enlisted rank and in the most competitive non-commissioned officer position, retiring as once again, a command sergeant major for the army's most elite unit. Rob upheld an accomplished decorated military career where he performed and led in the most dangerous and active war zones. As a geopolitical subject matter expert, he regularly briefed and provided recommendations to the U.S. government's most senior military and political leadership, while also cultivating critical relationships with foreign, civilian, and military leaders in support of U.S. national security objectives. Rob currently serves on the board of directors for Patriot Defense Group. He's a consultant for several several companies, including Tignum, a world leader in helping executives become sustainable high-performance leaders. And Rob founded, with his wife Kathy, the Unit Foundation, and he serves as president of the board of directors. Look, I could go on and on talking about Rob's accomplishments, but he's probably blushing by now as we're still in the intro. And so what I'll say to you about Rob is, once again, he is a real dude who is humble, but also knows that he's done a thing or two, and he's got an experience that is worth sharing and knowledge that is worth sharing, especially when it comes to leading teams and leading human beings. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Rob Lively. Rob, excited to have you on the podcast we were connected by Mark Polymeropoulos. Did I say that right? I always am concerned that I'm going to butcher Mark's name, but did that sound right? You did. You said it uh, better than most, I would say. Maybe so, better than him. I mean, you know, I've just been calling him Mark when we exchange emails. He actually emailed me this morning. And so uh, I try to just go with uh, Mark. I think that's that's the easy path. But I know I was blown away by Mark's storytelling and perspective and thoughts on leadership. And I I said to Mark, Hey, who's someone that you think I should connect with? And he brought you up right away. So I'm excited to learn from you today and excited to learn a little more than just what we had talked about a little while back on the phone. So first I'd love to just understand how you came to be you. And so I love to go to the child to childhood and really find out how you came to be you. 
Well, that's a, a wide open start. First, let me thank uh, let me thank Mark publicly for thinking enough of me to recommend me for an opportunity to spend some time with you, and most importantly, take uh, some of the lessons that I've learned from that childhood uh, up until the ripe old age of fifty six now that uh, that I can gift to other people. So it's a it's a fantastic opportunity to do that, and I appreciate the platform. Um, Young, uh, young kid in Virginia. Uh, my parents, my whole family from West Virginia, good, hardworking mountain people. My dad played football at West Virginia University. Uh, go Mountaineers. And then uh, I was um, uh, born in Fairfax where he was a football coach, offensive line coach for Marshall High School. Uh, if you remember the movie, Remember the Titans. Uh, he was Marshall was the team they played in the championship. It was right about that time my parents moved out to the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia, uh, thirty some acres. Uh, you know, school bus came to the front uh, of the house, and you know there were deer and bear and animals everywhere. We had some livestock, and we learned how to work hard. A good tight family. We learned about uh, community service. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, good morals, values, went to church every Sunday, whether we, whether we wanted to or not. And uh, it's just a, a good upbringing. Went to a local high school, small school there, country school, and uh, found myself at Virginia Tech as a student athlete for a while and then uh, moved on to uh, a business career shortly after that. Did take a sabbatical between business and uh high school and um, or uh, business in college and did a through hike of the Appalachian Trail, which was a fantastic experience and probably didn't know what I was learning at the time, but learned a ton of lessons that uh, sort of uh, became clear to me later and obviously very applicable. Hey, Rob, Rob <clears throat> go, ahead, go, back, go back to high school. So dad's a, a football player at West Virginia, uh, coaching football. Was, was sports and football a big part of your upbringing? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to be like my dad. I wanted to play football in college. Um, I wasn't, uh, ironically, I just finished a almost 30 year military career, but I never dreamed of being in the military. I never played with soldiers. I, I played football and I read football books. So I was pretty positive at a young age that I would be in the national football league. Uh, but that was just, um, I didn't have enough talent and, uh, wasn't big enough. And that, that dream did not come to fruition, but it led me to many more and probably better for me, exciting places and interesting adventures. Any siblings? I have one sister. I have one sister that still lives there. My dad, as a matter of fact, still alive. Uh, my mom passed away in 2003. And, uh, but all of our family, uh, I married my wife, Kathy, uh, in 1989, she went to high. We went to high school together, and uh, we didn't date in high school, but we dated afterwards. So all of our family is still there, and we will uh, we will celebrate our 31st year of marriage this summer. And the move from Virginia to West Virginia as a kid, were you excited by that? It sounds like you moved from. For those that don't know Fairfax, it's a suburb of Washington, D.C. It's near George Mason University. Um, it's a suburban, but not necessarily rural uh, environment. What was it like to move from, from Fairfax to West Virginia? Well, we actually didn't move to West Virginia. We moved out to the Shenandoah, Shenandoah Valley. Shenandoah, so, yeah, that's right. 
Yeah. So uh, out in the, the mountains of the western part of Virginia. So it was fantastic. I mean, I had a pony. I had a dog. You know, we had animals. You could, you know, run around in the woods by yourself and ride your bike up and down the mountain roads. I don't think we feared for anything. Uh, we had, there was essentially no crime. And uh, it was just a fantastic way to grow up uh, as a young kid. Uh, spent a lot of time with my dad working on things around the property, building fence or repairing things. Uh, and my dad was, um, he stopped coaching football and became a driver education coordinator in, up in Winchester, Virginia. And so um, we didn't have football games to go to like we did when I was real little, but uh, eventually not long after that, I became a, a high school player. And so football was always sort of the center of our center of our weekends anyway. Even though he wasn't coaching you, was he heavily involved in how you thought about football, given that he played at a high level? Uh, ironically, no. He was, uh, he was one of those young kids that got pressured from family members to play. Uh, maybe wanted to or didn't want to, but there was a lot of pressure from uh, his family there in West Virginia. I think he was one of the few, if maybe not still, uh, Division One athletes to come out of his little high school in uh, southern West Virginia. So he was very sensitive about that and did not push sports on me and was probably oversensitive and didn't, didn't participate as much in my development as maybe he could have or wished he could have. Certainly I wish he would have done more. But uh, I understand why why he didn't, and it was a little sensitive by it. You say you wish he had done more. You felt like you had another uh, maybe level to get to from a potential standpoint for, when it comes to football. Yeah, I think uh, I think when you're young, uh, you, you're trying to figure things out, and you're trying to be coachable, and you're trying to watch and learn from so many different people. Uh, it, it would, for me, it would have been, um, it probably would have been an advantage and a welcome, a welcome advantage to have just a little more tutelage from, you know, my dad right there at home, maybe giving me some after action reviews, you know, after a performance to sort of help me, uh, sort of shape my philosophy of the game and help develop and calibrate some of those instincts that I think you you spend a lot of time trying to do yourself uh, and you could probably do better with a little more one-on-one -on -one individual coaching that, that was available to me. What about mom? What was mom like? And, and what was she like in the family dynamics of that? Uh, our mom was the leader of the family without question. Uh, my dad will emphatically tell you that. And, and we all will. She was uh, energetic she also came from the same high school. My, my parents were sweethearts since the fourth grade uh, and until mom passed in 2003. So she was, uh, she was the energy. She was the catalyst. Uh, she was the leadership. And, uh, you know, we learned, a, we learned a tremendous amount of our philosophies on, you know, service and taking care of your neighbor and working hard and, you know, being loyal to the family and uh, just, you know, I look back now <clears throat> and I, you know, I try to tie together, you know, various common themes throughout, you know, all of the people in my life that taught me something. And it's, I go back to some of those things that I learned from my mom uh, that, 
you know, it's, uh, it's interesting. You don't really realize it at the time, but uh, a lot of times people are having a tremendous impact on you uh, in more of a clandestine way than you really, than you really think. Are you more like mom or more like dad? Um, way more like my mother, way more like my mother. Um, definitely, you know, I've been away from home for, you know, several decades now. So uh, I've turned into my own person, but I think uh, my, my personality and my demeanor uh, is, is more like my mother. I think uh, in a lot of ways, as I get older, I'm a little more like my father, but um, yeah, I, uh, you know, I intentionally try to grab the best of both of them and uh and you know implement that and um and and put as much of that into my my open dna as i possibly can like loyalty service work ethic mom mom modeled those things and and then those are values that that you have as well today yeah absolutely my father my father steadfast one of the hardest workers i've ever seen calm patient uh you know um just a, a you know a real sort of observer asked a lot of questions uh, but I just remember probably from a work ethic perspective my, my dad may have been one of the hardest workers uh, I've ever known in my lifetime and so oftentimes uh, in the military when I've thought you know maybe I wasn't working hard enough I'd always think back to my dad and go well I'm, I'm sure I have more in the tank. Let me see if I can get some more of that out. You mentioned the military. You also mentioned playing football at, at Virginia Tech. Uh, connect those dots. What was it like to play football at Virginia Tech? And then um, also, when did the idea of the military come into your mind? So I, um, I went to Virginia Tech uh, and uh, sustained some injuries uh, fairly immediate and uh, struggled with those injuries throughout. And so my, my football experience at Virginia Tech, uh, for a, a multitude of reasons, some I could have controlled and some I didn't control, uh, and some that I couldn't control at all, uh, sort of turned that into a fairly negative experience. So after, uh, after three years, uh, I, I stopped playing, retired from playing, and concentrated on my schoolwork. And and finished up and, and got out of school. And then I, um, you know, I still had this uh, burning desire to do something uh, different, have some adventures. Um, I think when I was when I was little, I remember thinking, you know, I, I don't know what kind of life I want to live, uh, but I want to live a life that is worthy of someone writing a book about. So I wasn't really sure what that meant or what that was. Uh, I didn't really, it wasn't an arrogant thing that I wanted somebody to write about me. I just wanted to live a life that was worthy. Rob, of, what, what age does that come into your, into your mind? Could you go back and try to pinpoint it? Uh, probably fairly young, probably early teens. Uh, I'm, at that time, I'm thinking about football a lot. I'm showing a lot of potential. Uh, you know, I've got a dream of playing in the, you know, and certainly in college and potentially in the National Football League. But I think I remember reading about a book. I didn't really read much about the military, but I did read a book about a special operations unit. And I remember, I think right about that time is when I thought, what, a, what an amazing life 
that this the, the main character had it was a fictional book. What an amazing life he had. And I was also reading books about, you know, you know, Mean Joe Green and Merlin Olson and some of those interesting characters from that era. And and sort of that is about the time when I started thinking about living a life worthy for someone to write a book about, always pushing the envelope and being being uh, out of your comfort zone and, and seeking adventure uh, uh, and, and kind of pattern your life in that direction. So um, after normal studies for uh, a year and a half or so, uh, I, I graduated, uh, went, went home, didn't have a clue what I would, wanted to do, uh, started working at a, a local factory and uh, cut some cut, cutting wood, selling wood, save some money. My parents drove me to Springer Mountain, Georgia. They dumped me out with my my seven month old Labrador Retriever on uh, the side of the road, and I followed white blazes for two thousand one hundred and forty some miles till I got to to Maine, and they they came up and picked me up. So before that- before we go into the hike, because I'm actually curious, I think it's a really cool story. I just want to go back to fourteen year old version of yourself or whatever age you were, and you're reading these books about football players and special ops, what would you say to that version of you now? So if you could go back and talk to that 14-year-old who's interested in one day maybe I live a life that's meaningful enough that someone would write a book about me, would you, would you, what advice would you give to that person? I would tell that young man to develop his criteria for living his life. So when I got out of the military, I had five criteria for everything that I was going to do. If whatever job or opportunity I had, it had to have, it had to have an element of passion, purpose, and service, creative freedom, and impact, fun and impact for me now they're the same thing. So, I'm not saying that those five things would be the same for, for that 13, 14 year old young man, but I would, I would ask that young man to develop what are those, what are those guiding principles and criteria by which he should measure everything he does. And that will help direct him to places where there is opportunity, uncomfortableness, adventure, success, uh, satisfaction, but most importantly, that will take him in the direction of really good people. And if you surround yourself with really good people, everything else just sort of works itself out. So that's probably uh, a sense of direction would have been the thing I would have told that young man. It's such a different concept than I get that there was an impact element of wanting to have a book written, but there's also a fame element to it, right? Like to be well-known, there's a legacy component to having a book written about you. Um, But it's interesting because what you just went to is much more about meaning, process, fulfillment, journey. It's less about having a book per se. Um, am Am I hearing that right? Yeah. Um, remember I said, I didn't want somebody to write a book about me. I wanted to live a life worthy of someone writing a book about me. Got it. So whether they ever do or not to the, to this day, I'm, 
somewhat agnostic about that, but uh, but I but I wanted to be able to you know when my time on this planet is up, think to myself, you know, that was that was a heck of a ride and certainly worthy of somebody to study it. Cool. So if I'm connecting the dots now, I'm hearing back then I knew that I wanted to have a fulfilling, meaningful life. Now you have a sense of the things that will allow for that to happen. Am I, is that? Exactly. That's yeah. clear. Okay. Yeah. That's really helpful. It's, it's, it's just interesting to hear that perspective. And then I'll go back to that. You know, your parents drop you off to go hike. Are you, you it's just you and your pup. It's just you and your dog doing that. Yeah, I had uh, I had no experience in long distance hiking. Uh, I mean, I I grew up in the country, so we hunted and fished, uh, you know, as a young person. And uh, when I got out of football, I decided I need something, and uh, I started getting to outdoor sports a little bit. And one one day, I just thought I read a story on the Appalachian Trail. I went and bought some really cheap equipment, did a weekend hike went and figured out I didn't have the right equipment. I upgraded that as best I could afford, did another weekend hike, and then hiked the Appalachian Trail. So I had about four days of hiking under my belt, and I went and hiked the Appalachian Trail, confident that I could uh, I could grip my way through it. And it was me and my pup. They dropped me off. They drove away, and uh, I started walking north. How long did it take you? I took about six months. I was about one day short of six months. I could have done it a lot faster. I uh, allowed myself to enjoy the journey. I got sidetracked a few times, probably about 60 days total. I didn't walk at all. If I found a pretty spot, I would stop uh, and enjoy it. One day I walked 30 miles. The next day I might walk two or three miles. I found um, a young author in Pennsylvania named Cindy Ross was writing a book. And she was, her and her husband were building a log cabin. So I stopped there for about three days because I was interested in how they were hand hewing the logs. And so we, I stayed there about three days and I worked and they fed me. And uh, about three days later, I got tired of that. And I just picked my pack up and started walking again. So I, it was, it was, a, I, I treated it like a journey. I didn't plan it, you know, how many miles per day and where I would be every day and, and into that detail, but I just enjoyed the, enjoyed the journey. Were you comfortable on your own or were you more comfortable when you were with people like the author and in, in, in the log cabin? Where, where were you most comfortable? I'm an, I am, um, I would say both. I'd like to be by myself a lot, but I also enjoy learning from other people and, and interactions. So you know, I'm probably a, you know, a 70, 30, 60, 40 person where I, I need the majority of the time. I like to kind of be by myself, but uh, I do need, the thing about the Appalachian Trail is you're, you're always bumping into someone and uh, it's kind of a, you know, you might hike faster than someone and pass them and then you don't see them for two weeks. And, uh, but it is, uh, uh, um, it was, it was uh, a, a really interesting journey. As a matter of fact, I talked to a, a girl the other day that I, that I knew from the Appalachian Trail all those years ago. That was 1987. And so we, we hadn't talked in 20 years. So it was, it was interesting to catch up on each other's lives. What did you learn from that experience? If I had to pull one major learning away, it is, you know, people say, they ask me often, 
how did you walk that far? And I say, just one step at a time. It is literally one step at a time. And all you have to do is keep walking. And uh, I probably learned that from that, um, from that young lady I just referred to. I, I, she, started, she, she started the Appalachian Trail out of, out of shape and overweight uh, by, you know, a lot. And she, um, she walked herself into shape and completed the trail where most people thought she would not have been able to do that. And so I, I was a, you know, a strong fit person and I would say it wasn't um, physically challenging as much as it was mentally challenging because that's a lot of walking every day. And uh, I learned just, you know, that the, the, uh, it's the, like the old saying, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? And so I, I learned patience and determination and just to, just to keep, even when you get tired of doing it, just keep doing it just a little bit at a time. And it's like water on a rock. And I probably thought about that more during some of my leadership challenges later on, you know, how to develop people in, you know, transformationally. Uh, it's water on a rock. And I, it's probably some of that core learning from just hiking the Appalachian Trail. You mentioned that you were confident after two days of preparation. Uh, you know, you went two days, figure out what equipment you need. Mom and dad dropped me off. I, all right, let's go. Yet, when, before we started recording, you mentioned that you typically will prepare like crazy for, for something. And so I'm curious because a lot of people will align confidence to preparation. Uh, but you said you had confidence even though you hadn't spent a whole lot of time preparing. Why do you think that you had confidence that you were going to be able to, to, to do that? Well, um, probably a little bit to do with high energy, low IQ. <laughs> naive, <laughs> a little naive. <laughs> and, um, you know, 23 years old, I was pretty confident that I could put almost anything on my back and walk as far as I wanted to. Uh, what, I, what I learned later, a lot in the military, is there are you have an opportunity before you do anything to set conditions for success and risk mitigate and those are probably some of the things i didn't do back then uh, but um i would say I, I i got away with it without uh without too much effort yeah i have a saying think like a pro play like a kid and there's something to youth. Uh, I have a, a three-year-old and a four-year-old at home and you just see their fearlessness and their willingness to just jump and not worry about the consequences or even, you know, we're all still quarantined. And uh, my son has gotten really good at hitting a wiffle ball. <laughs> like, he's, not, <laughs> he's not thinking, he's just letting go and just swinging that bat. Uh, and their ability to acquire skills is, is so high and it's so quick. It's pretty amazing to observe and watch. But I think there is something to youth and being in our 20s and just saying like, yeah, I'm just going to go do it. Whereas sometimes we get in our own head and overanalyze things and, and gets in the way sometimes of our ability to go perform. Um, so it's an, it's an interesting thought. And, and to, for me, the, the clear thing over the years that has become apparent is that confidence certainly can get built based on preparation. It can be... Um, expanded based on success, but at its core, it's all about the dialogue that we tell ourselves. So as you're standing at the base, 
you're saying, yeah, I'm in great shape. I've been in the outdoors. I know how to handle it. I'm going to go do it. Um, and that self-talk and, and dialogue is very different than somebody who sits at the bottom and says, there's no freaking way I can do this. And I think about your friend who was overweight, her mindset and her dialogue was like, yeah, I'm just going to keep going and one foot in front of the other and one step at a time and keep going versus I'll never make it. I can't do this. I can't do that. I call them the apostrophe T's can't don't won't, um, <laughs> you know, and can do and will, it can often get you to be some to get, can get your confidence to increase. It doesn't mean you can do anything in this world because competence also matters. But if you have competence then, and you want to lean on confidence, it typically is about the inner dialogue you have with yourself. Um, so anyway, that's my little rant for the day. Uh, <laughs> military, you mentioned your mom saying, talking about loyalty and talking about service. And you talk about the book and reading this fictional book about special ops. So it sounds like somewhere in there, there was an idea that military would be an option, but when did it actually become something that you really wanted to pursue? Uh, it, interesting. I remember walking around my high school, um, uh, track with uh, Coach Thalman from Virginia Military Institute, and he was recruiting me. And I wanted to be respectful, but I, I, I said, you know, I have really no interest in going to a military academy or joining the military. And so I, I think I should probably contact him someday uh, and, <laughs> and, and let him know what happened. So uh, fast forward a few years, I worked for a company in. Uh, out of Winchester, Virginia for about three years. Uh, was a, I was at the management level. Uh, our, my wife and I had just been married for about a year and we were living in just north of Indianapolis. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, I was on my way home. Uh, I wasn't really super energized by what I was doing. And I passed an army recruiter and I walked in there and said, I think I would like to be an airborne ranger. And um, two weeks later, I had joined the military and put in my, my two weeks notice. Kathy, uh, my wife, Kathy, very supportive, helped, you know, we, we went through the, you know, the, the whole dialogue and she was part of the discussion and part of the decision. And uh, two weeks later, we, we had joined the military on a delayed entry program. And none of my family, my grandfather was in World War II, but for the most part, my family was not a military family and I didn't have many military uh, stories or experiences or knowledge. We joined the military on the delayed entry program uh, and we took the next six months, we sold everything, took the next six months and traveled, went home, spent time with our family. We did the northern 500 miles of the Appalachian Trail together for a couple of months uh, and then in January 2nd of 1991, I went to uh, basic training and then the military journey began four years at a time. All right. So now we're, now we're hearing a little pattern. So someone who says he likes preparation, you also trust your gut. It sounds like you trust some instincts and um, you know, if you feel something, it sounds like you, you just sort of act on it. Am I, am I hearing that wrong? No, you're not. Um, I will tell people I am where I am today based off of uh, uh, not a goal of I want to be here. I am where I am today based off of um, many, many smaller intentional decisions uh, where I followed a lot of instinct, a lot of heart, 
a lot of passion. Uh, I always sort of left myself with contingency plans that I could do something else if that didn't work out. But once I went all in, I went all in. And uh, I went 100% committed to whatever I was doing. And so I would say my, my success, the success that I did have, is probably because of once I decide I'm, I'm, I'm going to commit to something, then, I, then I'm 100% all in. And um, if, if you approach almost anything with that sort of passion, almost anything you do is going to be successful at some level until you choose for it not to be. So I want to take one step back and then just go back to Virginia Tech. And you mentioned you know, three years there, it didn't work out the way you wanted, a lot of injuries. How hard was it for you to walk away from it uh, and, and stop playing? An interesting, um, great question. So it was easy for me to walk away because I was so miserable playing. Uh, there was not near the level of success that I thought I would have. I was not near, uh, didn't have the health that I, I wish I would have had, which all results into an attitude that, that I should have never had. So it was easy to walk away because I was absolutely so miserable in that space. But that experience haunts me still today. Haunts is probably a dramatic term. It's uh, that experience bothers me still today because I didn't put all of the things into that and control as many conditions as I could have, should have controlled in order to try to be as successful as I possibly could be. So failure, uh, um, without question, that failure, uh, I was able to reincorporate into other experiences and say, okay, what, what did I learn that still grits on me today, grinds on me today, that I can plug that in and become more successful in other areas, in other endeavors? You know what's so interesting about that, Rob? I consider myself to be a person of conviction. When I do something, I, I can jump all in and I'm not too worried about failing or, or the consequences of it. I'm, I was not nearly the athlete you were, but I remember in high school, uh, I wanted to play JV basketball and I was really small and scrawny and they cut me the last cut and they said, you need to get bigger and stronger. And I was like, F you, like, I can play ball just roll out the ball and let's go. And I didn't take the feedback and do anything with it. Like I didn't go to the weight room and get stronger. You know, I didn't control what I could control. I, I didn't, I didn't do anything. I just said, Oh, your loss. Like, like I was some, like I was LeBron James, like your loss. <laughs> and, uh, like I don't have many regrets in my life, but how I handled that situation as a teenager is I look back and I'm like, gosh, I didn't give myself the best opportunity to, to make that happen for myself. And uh, I think now when I get feedback along those same lines, I try to inquire as to why it went that way and try to learn from it and grow from it. And I think the mistake that people make is that they think adversity leads to success and that adversity leads to growth. Adversity isn't the thing that triggers the growth. It's how you interpret the adversity that 
gives you the opportunity to grow. There are plenty of people that go through adversity in their life and don't grow at all. Um, it just gives you an opportunity. And so as I'm hearing you tell your story, it's just landing with me because I'm someone who definitely lives with conviction. And when I say I'm going to do something, I, I go and I do it. And uh, there's not a whole lot of gray in that. And I'm hearing from you, it's like, yeah, I, there are things that were out of my control that you know, did not make that experience great for me. And I could have handled some things differently to have a better experience in it, um, which is just, it's just an interesting thing that I don't give too much energy to, but I think it's worth mentioning. Um, yeah. There's, um, it's, it's, uh, I'm going to call it liberating. It's liberating when you finally realize that you don't have to, you don't have to be phenomenally successful every single day. You just have to control what you can control, give your best effort, do everything you possibly can to be successful in that space that is your day and learn, learn from it and be able to lay your head down at night and go to sleep and know that you were the best you could possibly be on that day. And maybe that wasn't even very good, but maybe there were a lot of other conditions and, and circumstances that you didn't control. You know, I was in, uh, I, I made it to uh, one of the most elite special operations units uh, in the world. And um, it, it's even, you know, I was there for 21 years and it's still funny when it still feels funny to say that. Why, but, why does it feel funny? Uh, it, it, it feels funny to say that you were in the best, uh, the best, one of the best thing in the world, like the best um, special missions unit on the planet. You know, I, I think, uh, and I, and I think by, by that always being just a little bit surreal, uh, kept me humble and appreciative and gracious and always committed and accountable for earning my place there every single day. And that is sort of the culture of that organization. So, you know, our culture statement was that, that we had a relentless pursuit of excellence in everything that we did. And a lot of people would argue and say, why isn't it perfection? Well, it's not possible. There's only been one per perfect person on the planet, by my view. We crucified him, so that leaves the rest of us. So, and it's not even really about excellence. It's about the pursuit the daily pursuit of excellence in everything you do. Parenting, in all of your combat skills, in your fitness, in your hand-to-hand, -hand, in your weaponry, in your financial accountability at home, uh, in your community. And it could, be, it could be overwhelming to believe that you need to be excellent every day in all of those spaces. And, and we never ask people to. We just ask them to pursue it. We just ask them to be a little better today than you were yesterday. And maybe uh, the pursuit of excellence means that seasonally, I don't need to focus on some of these things during this week. I need to focus on some of those things and prioritize accordingly. So I think, you know, <clears throat> going back to, if I look back at all of the, all of the, if I go all the way back to the Appalachian Trail, it was the pursuit. It was just taking another step walking north a little bit more every day. And it was that, it's that mindset that uh, allowed me to commit to 
tremendous, tremendous organizations for over two decades and every day be as good as I could possibly be at, at that particular moment in time in that organization. You walk in the door and talk to that army recruiter. Are you hell bent on becoming elite or like go be a Navy SEAL, go be a pilot? Like what, what was, or was that also also a vision that you knew you wanted to go in that direction? I knew it had to be challenging and I knew it had to be hard. And, and what I knew the most of was uh, the, the Rangers. And so I said, I, I want to be, uh, I want to be an airborne ranger in the army. And, um, you know, you, you all, most military guys have stories about their recruiting experience, but long story short, I didn't end up in the, I didn't go to the second ranger battalion. I went to the 10th mountain division in upstate New York for about three or four years. And then, um, and then I made my way to the second ranger battalion in, uh, in Fort Lewis, Washington. And you mentioned being elite and uh, feeling funny even saying that. What did you notice or observe amongst being around elite performers as far as their mindset? What were some things that you noticed? Were there correlations? Obviously, everyone's different, but what were some themes that you would notice around the company that you were keeping? Every, um, first of all, you you're used to being one of the top performers and then you go to the most elite organization and you find out that you have to really work really, really hard to be about middle of the pack, to be average, to be mediocre in that, in that uh, population. Sometimes you might be, uh, you know, one of the best ones on that day, but very few are the best ones on every day. And so, <clears throat> you learn uh, the accountability of work ethic. So before I just knew about work ethic. Now I learned about the accountability of work ethic. So the person to your left and your right is working so hard and you know that you are going into combat with these men. Therefore you must work that hard and they drive you. And if you, no matter whether you are working on marksmanship skills or fitness or hand-to-hand -hand skills or strategy or planning or uh, capability development, you are always pushing yourself to try to, be, to try to live up to what they expect you to be, which turns into what you expect you to be. Rob, you mentioned hand-to-hand -hand strategies, you know, shooting, whatever it might be. Was there one skill that came easier to you and one skill that came more difficult to you? And I'd be curious to know how you handled that. Um, I, I am very talented at breaking things, uh, breaking through doors and things like this. Um, I was not a natural shooter, especially with uh, a pistol. And uh, so it took a lot of muscle memory and a lot of, lot of training for me to be a, a very good pistol shooter. But I would say that there's so many skills that you have to be responsible for uh, and you have to be good at. You know, I was not naturally good at many of them. And so I just, uh, you know, I always worked super hard to try to make sure that I was being the best I could possibly be.
And one of the things I am always intrigued by when I talk to people that served in the military is teamwork and how much the brotherhood or, or whatever you want to call it impacts performance. Talk about teamwork and the idea of preparing individually, but then also you said accountability from the people next to you. What was, what were some of the things you, you picked up on and learned as it related to teamwork? Uh, the thing about the, the great thing about um, being in a volunteer unit is everyone wants to be there. Everyone volunteered to be there. So everyone is bought in and believes in the, you know, what, you, what your organization is chartered to do, excuse me, from the beginning. So you have a common bond in, in your selection. Everyone comes into the organization essentially the same way. Uh, and then they are lined up against, you know, a charter and a mission that they've all agreed to or are excited to do. So the forming of the team is relatively easy. But taking that team into the most difficult situations and getting the most out of everyone for long periods of time is is where the real the real lessons of teamwork and leadership came for me. So uh, I, I got to that special operations unit in 1998. So that's a pre 9/11 uh, experienced 9/11 experienced uh, you know combat in multiple countries in the Middle East. Usually one of the one of the first uh, groups there, and <clears throat> you're talking about two decades. Of, of continually leaving your home for long periods of time, try to maintain, uh, you know, a family, raise your children, do all the right things and service uh, those missions that, uh, that you're asked, asked to execute. And so uh, that, is, that is what I learned was you can have the tightest team and the most volunteers uh, but we, but now you have to take those people for long distances, long durations, for challenging things, uh, in losing mates, and and people have you know life happens to people. You know their childrens get in trouble, or their children their children are graduating from high school and being very successful. Some have great marriages, some don't have great marriages, and so to be able to really care for a team. And I would say sometimes I did it well and sometimes I didn't do it well. Uh, to be able to care for human beings uh, with empathy and compassion on one hand, but uh, you know, stern and demanding on the other and, and modulate when, when to do those things uh, the most uh, and the, at the most appropriate and effective times, that that's probably the greatest learning I have. So, it wouldn't be the formation of the team. It would be the sustainment of the team, which is the most difficult. Is that what you think makes up a good leader? Someone who can be empathetic and compassionate, but also stern and, and hold them accountable? Or is there, is there another piece that you see in, in great leaders? What I have seen in all of the great leaders that, I, that I've been exposed to and the people that have influenced my life is that they understand the spectrum of leadership. So everyone will get, the, there are a lot of definitions of leadership. My definition is that there is a spectrum of leadership and on one end is transformational and on the other end is transactional. 
sometimes I call that uh, leadership and commandership, commandership being the transactional. So there are some times when you just need to tell people, you need to be decisive, you need to make decisions, and you need to execute. And there are some times when you need to do so by committee or you need to sit with people and help them grow as human beings uh, and invest in them and have meaningful relationships with them. And so in the military, it's easy on the transactional part because there is a, there is a rank structure. It's harder on the transformational part. And so for me, all the great leaders and ones I've tried to emulate are they understand that spectrum and where they need to be on that spectrum to sustain the people, the humans, because these are humans working in this space, uh, and the, the, the teams that over a long duration uh, have the resilience and the commitment and the dedication to do that for years and decades. Love that you're using the term sustainable because I think a lot of times we use the term consistent and I think sustainable is more powerful. Um, and, and so to me, I think every great organization I've been around is aiming to be sustainable. And um, so I think it's just a really neat word. You mentioned 9-11. How did that hit you being in the military? Um, just walk me through what that was like for you to experience it. Uh, interesting. I had, um, so I had, uh, broken my back and I had just had my spine fused in June of 2001. So I had a lower lumbar three level fusion and I was doing rehab and I had, uh, you know, I was at the organization and I, w I had light duty, you know, while I was, uh, recovering and letting the, the bone graft together. And so 9-11 happens and I think, oh my heavens, I'm, I'm not fit for duty. I'm not going to, I'm going to miss it. Uh, no one knew at that time it would be decades long. And so I, I was scared to death. So I ended up. Scared um, to death that you would miss it. That's what you're scared to death of. Yes. I didn't want, I didn't want my entire element to leave me and I would be back there. That, that's a, a warrior's nightmare. And so uh, I, I got in my vehicle and I drove to Walter Reed and I, I got my doctor uh, who had, I had a neuro and an ortho, two of the best ever. And I, and I walked right in their office and they said, Hey, what are you doing here? And I said, Hey, we got to get some tests done and we got, I have to make sure that I'm fit for duty. I have, I've got work to do. And, uh, of course they knew me well. And, uh, they, they did, they ran the tests and they took care of me without appointments and, uh, gave me some, uh, more aggressive protocols. So I was able to, to get, uh, get back fit for duty and, and catch up to it. But what I remember was, um, I remember everyone being so, uh, of course, my element, my organization were, were focused on what we believe was going to be asked of us. Uh, and I remember the country, you know, de devastated and people, I remember my mother called me, uh, you know, and she, she just wanted to tell me she loved me. And I, I didn't understand why, because all my focus was, I was afraid I was going to miss this and I wanted to get back with my team. And <clears throat> so I regret not being as uh, compassionate and empathetic to her on that particular phone call. But my, my focus was get back with, get back with the pack, get back with the team. 
and and be ready to go where they need to go. And so that was, and and and, and I was able to get that done, thankfully. But you know, I would it would have it would have uh, been a bad memory had I been left behind. You mentioned losing your mom a couple, you know, not long after that in two thousand three, uh, losing brothers in arms. Um, how, how do you think about death? What's your What's your perspective on on death and and loss? Uh, I, I think what I've learned about myself in watching the coronavirus uh, is I, I may be more insensitive to it than and more conditioned to it than I, than I actually thought I was. Um, my daughter lives in New York City. She lives in Brooklyn. And so she, is, she has seen, uh, you know, uh, some people dying, body bags and things like this uh, that she'd never seen before. It is not, I've had so much death uh, in, my, in my life. I've seen so much death that uh, it probably doesn't bother me uh, as much as it should, but it also allows me to think objectively about situations that other people may be, over, may, may be overcome by the, the death aspect, the death element of it. And for me, uh, it keeps, I, I'm able to keep more of a clear head in, in, in those discussions. Obviously, I don't have combat operations anymore, but I was able to compartmentalize and keep a clear head in, in, during times like that. I will tell you that uh, between 2003 and 2006 and just our family, and, uh, and this is where I give a shout out to my, my wife, Kathy, a military spouse of uh, 28 years. Uh, we had uh, Kathy's mother and father both passed away. My mother passed away. We had some grandparents pass away. And we had several of our friends that, that I served with pass away during that time. And, and I also did, I think, four different uh, long duration deployments during those years. And uh, you want to, if, if you want a story on real, real uh, leadership and grit and, uh, and loyalty and dedication to their family, uh, Kathy, Kathy wrote that story by her actions uh, during that time frame. And so I, I say that not just to um, give Kathy a shout out, but all of our military spouses deserve a, a good shout out. Oftentimes we forget about how, how, how much they do and how gritty and tough they are holding things together, you know, while, while a lot of the, the soldiers are off doing their work. Yeah. When we talked uh, a little while back, you said, I feel like the coronavirus is an experience rather than a crisis. And I thought that was just an interesting perspective on it. Um, you mentioned 28 years being in hostile, rugged environments and you talk about loss any post-traumatic stress as you're going through this stuff? Um, I mean, I'm sure some of the stuff you've seen, any of, any of that creep up? Yeah. No, Brian, you know, I don't. And it's an interesting, and, and, I, uh, and I know I have, obviously, I have a lot of friends that are veterans and struggle with uh, some of those things. You know, those were things that I did. Those were not uh, that's not who I am. Uh, so I always tried to make sure that I was prepared. I always tried to make sure that I controlled as many conditions as I could possibly control 
to set conditions for success. So in doing that, some things just happen. And sometimes you make mistakes and sometimes you don't. And sometimes people do. It's never intentional. But it's those things just happen. And I never... I I never let them impact me because they were never intentional. I never had any hatred for the enemy. Um, I I did my job. I did my job to the best of my ability. And, you know, by, by most all accounts, that was uh, uh, pretty darn good. And, but I never did anything with hatred. So I don't feel like that I have any traumatic stress. I get sad. I mean, you know, I've lost a lot of friends. On Memorial Day, I'll be sad, you know, and, and when I look at the calendar and look on a date of a friend that was lost, I'm sad. And it's okay. I don't mind being sad. They, de- they deserve to be thought of on that day, and I deserve to be sad about it. Uh, but it, it somehow I was able to process and keep things in perspective and learn, learn a ton and celebrate and celebrate those lives and those men and what I learned from them. Uh, and then after that, maybe I just compartmentalize the rest of it, uh, as, as it probably needs to be. It sounds like the ability to shift your, from your identity, as far as what you do and who you are was big for you. And I, it's a much lesser degree, but I hear that with athletes a lot when they feel the pressure of winning and losing and, uh, the ability to understand that this is what I do. It's not my exactly who I am also can help them with transitioning out of sport. Uh, and transition is actually something I'd love to talk to you about because you're still relatively new. I mean, 28 years with, you can, you know, compartmentalize the identity all you want, but 28 years being an elite soldier and, and, and having that as a part of what you're doing every day. Uh, and then, you know, last year you're, you come out of the army. What was that transition like? What's it been like the last year and a couple months? Uh, what's that experience been like for you? You know, I, um, I've had this conversation with a lot of people and I would tell you my transition has been easier than almost everyone I know. And I think it's because I was intentional about it. I planned for it. I thought a lot about it. Uh, I developed my five criteria that, were, that would guide, you know, who I worked with and, and what I did. Um, I, I never felt myself a victim of transition. And I never felt that um, I never felt that I was transitioning to become a civilian. I felt that I was transitioning to become not just a veteran. I was transitioning to become a special operations veteran, a very experienced some would say accomplished. Uh, I rose to some pretty, pretty um, accomplished leadership levels. And I tried to translate everything I learned from the tactical to the strategic, translate that into what I did, uh, what I've been doing for the last year and a half. Some of those things, um, some of those things I did well, and some of those things I really struggled on transitioning those experiences um, based off of, you know, the, the, the people that I were working with, but all of that has been part of the journey and it's been part of my learning and it's been part of maybe, uh, learning more about myself, but not learning more about myself because I'm a transitioning special operations veteran learning more about myself because I'm a human on this journey through life 
and I am continually learning more about myself, trying to be a better version of myself all the time. So when, when, uh, when I think about my transition, I think about, I, you know, I've transitioned a lot. I transitioned, you know, out of a, from, from one position to another position. I transitioned from one unit to another unit. I transitioned from college to the Appalachian Trail to business to the military. So I, I feel like that if I were not to, if I, if I were to transition poorly out of the military into, uh, into uh, the civilian sector as a special operations veteran, I would feel that I had failed in that space. And I don't want to fail in that space. I want to do it well. And I feel like that I have a responsibility to my friends, family, and, and, and fellow unit members and fellow veterans to do it well. And what did, it, what did I learn and what can I share with them? So what do you, what do you miss? You will all like, I will always miss, like I, I used to say all the time, you know, Brett Favre just wants to play another game mm -hmm. and I will, I will always miss being in a team room with the excitement uh, of getting together with some of the best warriors on the planet and going to do a mission uh, that you know only you can do. And coming back after mission success and, and sitting around with each other and, and celebrating that time together, that brotherhood, that cohesion, uh, and, and that phenomenal experience and, you know, and what you learned and what you learned about each other and just, just soaking that up. Like that is, that is the space where it, the, where it was the most pure and you were, you know, like, uh, it, it's the, it's the journey to get there, but it's also that time right there and where you can just be with those other warriors. And I experienced that in 2005, I remember sitting on the roof of a uh, building in Western Iraq after a, uh, after a, a, a night mission. And I remember sitting around with those men and I was thinking to myself, now I understand why, you know, you read stories about some of the guys that volunteered to stay in Vietnam for two or three years. They, they just wanted to be there with their, their brothers. And I, I got, I, I could understand that then obviously our war is different and uh, certainly didn't have the sustained duration that uh, the two or th of two or three years straight, but I could, I could begin to understand why they would volunteer to stay uh, year after year after that, some of those times. The camaraderie is the biggest thing I hear when I ask that question to athletes and whether they retire after college or, you know, they're like you and they can't keep going and their fourth, their senior year or um, from pro ball uh, camaraderie is often what I hear. You mentioned wanting to be the best version of yourself. What do you do now? Um, what, what are some things that you do to make sure that you're taking care of yourself and that you're showing up every day the best version of you? What, what I've learned uh, is I have to have a real, a real keen sense of self-observation. A lot of people will call it self-awareness, but I want to observe myself in a... In a um, 
you know, my friend Scott Pelton that I referred you to uh, works, uh, started a company called Tignum. Uh, and one of the things he talks about is be able to observe yourself in a non-judgmental way and just see, see what you're working with. This is, this is who you are. And this is, uh, that is your start point. So what I try to do every day is know who I am, be true to who I am. Uh, start, I start my day every day with my wife. If I'm not traveling, I, we start, we have coffee together, we hold hands and we watch the news uh, for 30, maybe an hour. We get up early, we spend that time together because we don't know if we're going to have any more of our day to do that. I have a uh, to-be vision that I read that is the version of my best self. I, I do fitness every morning. I have uh, an opportunity for prayer. I get myself mentally and physically right for that day. And I've learned over time that if I don't get a good night's sleep, if I don't start my day at the right time, at the right pace, doing the right things, the rest of my day will often not be as good as I want it to be or as good as it could be. Now, that, uh, that does not mean that I am a robot. That just means that I'm intentional. So on Sunday morning, we may sleep till 7, maybe even 7.30, and we may have a glass of wine uh, in the hot tub in the middle of the day. So um, I'm not a robot, but I am intentional, and especially on those days where I know I need to perform. Let's say I have a speaking engagement or I need to be cognitively spot on on that particular day, I will, I will pay extra attention to those things. So I, I treat my, my whole physicality as one unique, complex system, and I try to service that as much as possible uh, the way I've learned to for my own uh, unique uh, requirements so that I can set myself up for success for that particular day. I love, I love what you said and pretty much all of it. As somebody who likes wine and hot tubs, I, I especially like that aspect of it. Um, but I, I think too often we hear people that are so routine-based and habitual that they don't have any agility or flexibility. And when that habit is not available to them and they can't access it, they are thrown off course. And so what I heard from you is I'm very intentional about how I set my day and how I set my mind and how I set my body. And there are times when I can go away from that and I still will be okay. And um, I think there are often times where people are just mindless with their routines and there's no intention behind it other than they're just a slave to it. And that's just what they do. So they just keep doing it. And sure, it might allow you to exercise and eat healthy and do all, all kinds of stuff that is good for you, but they might be missing the opportunity to be spontaneous, to live, to be present for their spouse, to see their kid. Um, like there are times I like to meditate, but if my son wants my attention, there are times where I'm going to give my son my attention. And the reason I'm meditating is so that I can be present for him. I'd rather just be present for him. Like, <laughs> um, so I think sometimes we all can overcomplicate uh, our systems uh, and it's not that I don't believe in systems. I certainly think that they're very helpful. I just think we want to have a system and then intentionally know when we can break off of it and and go into these different nooks and crannies. So um, as I heard you talk, I heard a lot of that, which is really cool. Rob, 
give everyone a sense of what you're up to now, uh, what you're hoping to do in the future and uh, let people know where they might be able to find you and your work going forward. Well, uh, as of last week, I'm unemployed for the first time in several decades. All of the uh, initiatives and contracts uh, that, I've, that I have are expired, uh, some just because they did and some because of the coronavirus. But that has, and some intentional, because I am working with uh, a group of talented folks and we are working on a, uh, a new upstart, a new start. It's kind of a startup company that's going to partner with another company. It's in the human performance uh, line of effort. And uh, we think we can impact people in a very positive way uh, through some of our strategies and some of our techniques and some of our offerings. And so we should be uh, closing that deal in the next week or so. And then uh, I'll be the CEO of that company and be excited to take it from zero to hopefully a hundred over the next uh, six months to a year. I'm excited to get back in uh, a leadership position. I've done a lot of consulting over the last year plus. And I've kind of, one thing I kind of learned about myself is I'm a kind of an all in person or an all out person. So I can, I can sit on a board four times a year and, and be okay. Uh, one company asked me to work about 10 hours a week. Very difficult for me to work 10 hours a week. Uh, I, I'm either going to be all in or pretty much all out. So I'm excited to be all in on something, have a mission, have a, a goal, uh, be able to impact people in some positive ways and, uh, be in the, in the leadership arena again. So, uh, I will, uh, I'll be able to tell you more about that, uh, in the future, but, uh, for now I, I I'm going to, I have to kind of keep that, keep that to myself, but I still do. I still will do I work with Matt Burke and company. Matt Burke played 15 years in the NFL. Uh, I, I bumped into him at the NFL combines where I spoke on crisis leadership, uh, one time. Uh, so now Matt Burke and company represents me for, uh, keynote speaking engagements. Uh, a guy named Paul Vitale is the uh, operations lead for that. So you can look at uh, either mattburkincompany.com or roblivelyspeaking.com and find me there if you're interested in uh, uh, a keynote. Or as a matter of fact, I did a three-hour session with a, a company last uh, winter, and uh, the the person asked me afterwards. I used no notes for three hours. I had a few slides and they said, how did you do that with no notes for three hours? How did you prepare for that? And I just simply said, I've been preparing my whole life for this. So uh, that, that's kind of what I'm up to now. You know, I was going to finish, but there's something that sparked my interest. So I'm just going to ask it. You mentioned crisis leadership and doing a talk on that at the NFL Combine. As you look around, we're, this might be an experience to you, but for many, this feels like a crisis. Um, and so what are you noticing or observing uh, on how leaders are, are handling what we're all sort of going through right now? Well, we could do a, a whole other <laughs> podcast on that, but I'll try to be really brief. So... Um, for me, crisis leadership is the ability to take information and relay it to people. And that information sometimes distills out into 
intelligence. You can act on intelligence, you can't act on information. So our leaders should be, and some are and some aren't, and we'll, we'll learn more about leadership performance when this is all over. But we were someplace in our practices and our preparation and our supplies and the, the collision of the complex and the so simple. Washing your hands is now just as important as um, you know, biochemistry. So uh, all of these things have sort of collided at once and we need information. We need information, and that's now we have data, information and data, and we're going to take this information and what we've learned, and we're going to act on this and ask you to be responsible and do these things. Uh, I think what we're seeing is the inability of leaders at all levels through media, who sometimes have an agenda and sometimes don't, the ability to give information, um, pure information and intelligence, and be able to give courses of action and understanding so that they, so they can manage the crisis. And so I would say we'll probably look back on this and, and decide that maybe a lot of the systems and strategies that we had before were not prepared for something like this, even the most simple things like cleaning subways properly, uh, all the way to the ability for leaders to get unfiltered information to a responsible society so they know the right things to do, so that we're not having to arrest people for wearing masks or not wearing masks, and we, we, they can actually trust their leadership at some level in order to, to, to comply with precautions that, that are good for all of us. It's a nice summary of everything that we've talked about today because I hear you're you talking about transformational leadership and transactional leadership and they require really in-depth communication. They require trust, relationship, accountability, uh, responsibility. I mean, these are all tenants of, of great leadership. And what I've been saying to my clients who are leaders is we should be observing right now. Like it's really important that we learn because this is a situation where people are making decisions that have consequences. And if we're not learning about what might work, what might not work, we're missing a golden opportunity to learn. And so regardless of people's political perspective, um, I just think that there's an amazing opportunity to learn from leaders in the corporate world, in the nonprofit world, in the government. Uh, there are people that are standing up and putting themselves out there. There are people that are retreating. There are people that are, you know, communicating one way. And you look at even the, the PPP and the companies that decide to go for loans. I mean, there's just so much to your point to, to look at and learn from about how do we respond when we are in a hostile environment. Um, and, and so I, to me, I've just been challenging my clients to, to look and to observe and to not, um, not just look at it in, from one lens, but to try to look at it from multiple perspectives and then think about how it relates to how they're leading their people. So um, I think it's a, it's a massive opportunity to learn about leadership. Yeah, I hope we get a 9-11 commission report level of publication, investigation and publication research out of this. 
because we would be missing a tremendous opportunity to learn so much about ourselves in so many different um, in so many different disciplines that if we don't do that. I love it. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levins and Instagram intentional underscore performers. You can listen to all these conversations at intentionalperformers.com. Rob, great to connect with you. One day, maybe I'll get on that Appalachian Trail and we'll go for a walk. Um, I cannot, <laughs> I cannot guarantee even what you did with Kathy the 500. I, I'm going to probably stay away from definitely uh, the entire thing. But I like hiking in mountains and and like being out in nature. And I think it's it's the thing that I think people are missing most with these Zoom calls is just being outdoors and being in nature. And um, so I, I hope and I look forward to the day where we can maybe do that together and, and spend some time outdoors and, and learn a little bit more. So looking forward to it. All the best on the new uh, new role that you're looking like you're taking up. And I uh, can't wait to learn more about what you're up to and what you're doing. Brian, thank you so much for the opportunity and, uh, and the opportunity to share what I've, what I've learned on your platform. So thanks. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. It feels funny to say that you were in the best uh the best one of the best thing in the world like the best um special missions unit on the planet you know i i think uh and i and i think by by that always being just a little bit surreal uh kept me humble and appreciative and gracious and always committed and accountable for earning my place there every single day and that is sort of the culture of that organization. So, you know, our culture statement was that, that we had a relentless pursuit of excellence in everything that we did.